Psalm 139. You can turn there. I hope you've got your Bible. If you don't, there's some on the back counter you're welcome to use and or take home with you if you need one at home. But Psalm 139. Before we read that today, I want to, I want us to think through an imaginary scenario. Okay? So how, are there any Cardinal fans in the house? Okay, any Adam Wainwright fans in particular? I'm a big Adam Wainwright fan. He is a very outspoken believer. Don't thumbs down my man, Adam Wainwright, dude. He is a God-fearing man who makes it known, and that is awesome in professional sports. Even if you're not an Adam Wainwright fan, just imagine your favorite pitcher, major league pitcher. So you enter this contest, and you win a day with, we're just going to use Adam, you win a day with Adam, okay? And so you get up in the morning, he shows up at your house, and he's got this brand new Cardinals jersey for you. He's got some autographed baseballs, and he gives you season tickets to the games, which is actually a pretty hot commodity right now because there's they're not full capacity. So you get all this stuff. You're super pumped. You, you go out in the yard, and you start playing catch with him, right? So he's teaching you kind of how to throw some stuff, and he's explaining things, giving you some advice and stuff like that. Then he takes you out for this really fancy lunch on the house, takes you out, uh, feeds you lunch, and then you go from there to the ballpark, to the locker room, where you hang out with the rest of the Cardinals. He introduces you to all of his friends and all of the players. You get to hang out with them. You get more autographed stuff, and then you get front row tickets to the game that night. You know the green ones where you get all the food you want. They have a special menu. If you guys have never sat there, you're missing out. But you get a special menu we got to sit there with Nikki's dad one time, and it was my goal to order something different every inning. And I did it. Didn't feel real great at the end, but. They did. I, yeah. There were only four in the box, okay? It's not that bad. So you're at the game. You're getting all you can eat. It is like you're having a fantastic day. It's been an incredible day with one of your most incredible people. Let me ask you this question about that obviously fictional scenario. What's more noticeable in that situation? How deserving you are to receive a gift like that or how generous Adam Wainwright is to give it to you? The answer is pretty obvious, right? Like you just entered a contest. You didn't do anything, but Adam Wainwright gave up his day, signed the balls, got you jerseys, introduced you to all his friends. He did all this stuff. And, And there's a tendency like Jason said in Psalm 139 and plenty of scripture otherwise, to make it all about us, to say, this is about me. And it it almost makes sense in in a way in Psalm 139. You'll see in just a moment, it says the word I 17 times. It says the word me or my 30 times. The truth is, in the state that we're in currently, not Missouri, but our our spirits, our souls, the state, the fallen state that we're in now, we just tend to make things about us even when we probably shouldn't. Think about birthdays. This is, I hope, not going to ruin your birthdays. But why do we get birthday presents on our birthdays? How many of you did anything to be born? Maybe we should give moms presents on our birthdays. Right? They did all the work after all. 
but we like to make it about us. So when we read Psalm 139 and we see me and my 30 times and I 17 times, we tend to make ourselves the subject of the text. And so I'm going to say something that might sound insensitive, but I promise I don't mean to be rude. And it's this, the world does not revolve around you. I, I'm sorry to break your heart, Paul. I love you, brother, but it does not revolve around you. I, I, I do my best as a father to communicate that to my children in a honest, but you know, kind way. Like this is, it's not all about you. I need to look in the mirror and say the same thing because in our imaginary scenario with Adam, Adam Wainwright, his generosity is what people should really remember from that kind of a thing. Not how deserving I am. And in our text today, David's not the subject of the text. He writes it, but he's not the subject. And you and I aren't really the subject either. God is the main subject of Psalm 139. And I just want to take just a few moments before we start to communicate that to you guys. God is the subject, so let's read it that way together. Now, don't misunderstand me. David, you, me, we're important as the intended recipients of this message because God doesn't do anything half-heartedly or on accident or without purpose. So there is a God-ordained reason why you are here this morning and why you are listening to this message. God wants his people to understand him better through texts like this, as well as understand ourselves better. Because the Bible, and specifically the text that we're going to read in just a moment, they answer really important life questions like, why am I here? Not like in church on Sunday morning, but why do I exist? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Does God exist? If God does exist, does he care about me? Does my life have purpose? If God does exist, can I know him? This chapter of Psalms links us to God in a way that very few others do. Now, they all do to some degree, but this one's pretty overt and obvious. And it's because it's so personal and because it's so real that it's tempting then to focus on us. And I want to guard us from that this morning. God's work as creator and God's character are, are I hope, what we see and remember as we read it today. So let's read through this together. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, which when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do, not, do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father, these words give life. And we don't want to make this all about us today, Lord, but we also want to recognize our role in it. Recipients, heirs, children. Thank you for creating us in the way that you have. No person sitting here, no person listening this morning is an accident. No person is living without purpose because every day of their life has been planned before they were even born by you. Lord, help us to get a glimpse of you this morning that we haven't had before or that is deeper and wider and clearer than we've had before so that we see and worship you better. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Self-help books, motivational speakers, psychologists, and even some religious groups will tell you that to be really successful in life, you need to just know yourself and be yourself and embrace yourself. Be who you are. If you would really love yourself for who you are, then you'll finally be happy. TV is full of movies with that message. Disney Plus is full of kids shows with that kind of a message. Some churches are full of that kind of a message. And that's not quite what the Bible teaches. And now, it's a noble quest to find happiness. It's just that so many of us look in the wrong place. So many of us listen to the voices that are telling us to look in the wrong place. Now, it's true. You can't be anybody other than yourself, which is precisely why we need to look outside of ourselves for truth and for happiness. Now, self-care is this phrase that's pretty popular right now. Um, it's a phrase we use a lot in today's world. And I'm not proposing that we never do things to be refreshed or cared for or encouraged not in the least bit. We need those times of rest and replenishing in our lives. I think that there is some amount of truth to that saying that says that you can't pour from an empty cup. Okay, but we shouldn't start our quest of finding ourselves by looking inward. <laughs> we can't start there or we're going to be in big trouble. Because here's the thing. If we think wrongly about who God is, then inevitably we will think wrongly about who we are. We have to, so we have to start in the right place. 
I consider Psalm 139 a wisdom psalm because it teaches us that. Now, there are a lot of other things that we find in this psalm. There's praise here. There's thanksgiving here. There's lament as well. But I consider it wisdom because six verses at a time, it teaches us tr- the truth about what God is like, about who God is. So just kind of scan through the whole chapter with me. It's, it's designed this way intentionally by David in six verse blocks. And each one, I think, gives us a new kind of refreshed vision of who God is, something new about his character. In the first six verses, it says that God knows everything. Verses 7 through 12 says that he's everywhere. 13 through 18, he can do anything. And then the last six reminds us that he rules over everything even our enemies. And within these very broad and sweeping truths, Scripture is clear that it's not all about us, but God's marvelous acts and His loving kindness intentionally extend to us. And that's something, I think, that should perk our ears up and that we should take notice of and will elicit a response, as we'll talk about in just a minute. So we're going to walk through this chapter in these six verse sections, starting with the first one. And this is the first phrase, kids, for you to be listening for, that God is omniscient. God is omniscient. The God, get this, the God who knows everything about everything knows you. He knows you. The knowledge and power of God are just on full display in these verses. Look at the action verbs that describe what I mean when I say that God knows you. It says that he searches, he knows, he discerns, he hems in, he lays his hand on you in these first six verses. And in these verses, there's four areas that I think we can see that David points to to show how God is omniscient over us over you. He knows everything. That's what omniscient means, all-knowing, okay? The first one is that God knows your actions. It says that he knows when you sit down and when you stand up. He knows when you sleep and when you wake up. In fact, David says that he is acquainted with all of your ways. Now, we've got small kids in our house, one that still takes a nap every day, and so we've got a baby camera in his room, And frequently, when he's supposed to be sleeping, he's not in his bed. And we need the camera to tell us. Well, not always need the camera to tell us that. We can hear him in other places sometimes. But I don't know when he's sleeping and when he's awake. But God does. And he knows the same thing about you. Nothing you do is hidden from God. Now, when I say that kind of a phrase... There's a mixture of emotions that's happening within us. And it's, it's kind of different emotions, right? It's both concerning and convicting, but it's also comforting, I hope. To know that there's nothing that I do that God doesn't see, eee. we need to be reminded of that. And it's because it's true. But it should bring his children comfort to know that God sees everything you do. Even the things, and I'll make this real personal today, even the things that you do for your mom today that she may not ever see or know, God sees. 
And God knows. He knows your actions. We get really good at hiding stuff from other people. We can come to church and we can hide sin that we've swept under the rug. We can do that real, real quickly and easily. We can hide our true selves from people easily, but we can't do it from God. He sees everything. He sees our actions. And then the next thing is that he also sees our thoughts, our motives. God knows your heart and your mind. He says that he has searched you and he knows you. And not just that, but he discerns your thoughts from afar. He knows what you're thinking everywhere you are. This is why David says later that you can't run away from his sight. There's nowhere that you can go to get away from God. Nowhere is too far for him. Again, I think this is both comforting and convicting. God not only sees everything you do, he knows every thought you think. Thirdly, God knows your words. It's not like God has this giant divine recording device and a really fast computer that he can just rewind real quick and repeat what you said to make sure he heard it right. He he knows what you are going to say before you even say it. Some of us don't even know what we're going to say before we say it. That may be a problem at times, but God does. God knows. You might blurt something out that you didn't even mean to say, but God knew you were going to say it. Fourthly, God knows your actions. God knows your heart and mind. God knows your words, but God also knows your future. Look at what the text says. It says that he hems you in behind and before and lays his hand upon you. If he knows your heart, if he knows your words, if he knows your actions, surely he knows your destiny too, your future. And for his child whom he has created and then recreated in the new birth, you are enveloped and enclosed, hemmed in, if you will, by who he is and what he's done. I, I could, we could even use the word surrounded. You are surrounded When I say that, I don't mean like you're surrounded by enemies in like this great amount of pressure and you're in fear. I don't mean that kind of surrounded. I don't even really mean surrounded in a sense of the caring aspect of that word where you get this big like warm physical hug from somebody. I think what David is getting at here is more of like the time aspect of being hemmed in, behind and before, enveloped, surrounded by He says, you lay your hand upon me. God's presence has been, will be, and is now with his children. Past, future, and present. God hems you in. You were made by an all-knowing, omniscient God. But he doesn't know you like Google knows you. Okay? It's creepy when you type in a phrase in Google... The auto like insert can like read your mind, right? So when you need gas somewhere and you type where's the cheapest and it's going to fill in, don't go try it because that's creepy, but it'll do that. It'll, it'll fill it in for you. It learns your habits, it learns your searches, and it gains information by following you and listening to you. That's actually pretty creepy. God doesn't know you like that. God doesn't need to learn anything about you. And here's why. It's very simple. 
because he made you. God knows you because he made you. He doesn't need to learn about you. and He doesn't need to learn about the world because he is your origin. The world is from him. He can't learn anything else because all knowledge comes from him. He is the source of knowledge. He can't learn. And so this is why I think David says at the end of, in verse 6, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I, I cannot attain it. God's wisdom, brothers, sisters, friends, is not something that you're going to get smart enough to match. Google will never know as much as God. All of the information in the world assembled in one place cannot hold a candle to the wisdom of God the Father. It's too wonderful. His wisdom is too extraordinary. It is too surpassing. It is too high, David says. Now, here's a story about my mom, Mother's Day, right? When I was a kid, I was convinced that my mom could see the future. I was convinced that she, I didn't know how she did it. Because, but every, when we'd come to a stoplight, she could always tell me when our light was about to turn green. And it wasn't until I was probably a teenager before I figured out she was just looking at the other lights. When they were turning red, she knew ours was going to turn green. I was convinced that my mom knew the future. I thought she was either a genius or I was just really slow. Probably both, in honesty. <laughs> God's wisdom is not like trickery or some kind of false wisdom. His knowledge is not something that you're going to be able to figure out. The point is that David and God, that you and me and God, we're not, we're not on the same level of understanding at all. And David makes it really clear, and there's a purpose in this. There are things that happen in this life that confuse me like stoplights. There are things that happen in this life that frustrate me, but not God. I get worried and I get anxious and sensitive and exhausted about the things that I can't control, but nothing is outside of God's control. And so he never gets worried or tired or frustrated. This also means, I think, that The things that happen that I don't understand or even the things that happen that I don't like are still part of the omniscient God's plan and purpose. It's okay, and I would even argue that it is a good, right thing to just simply come to the conclusion that God is God and you are not. And I am not. God is smarter than me. That's okay. I don't have to know how to explain everything. In fact, David handles this realization quite differently than I do, than I think probably we all do. When we get frustrated that we don't know the things that God knows, we oftentimes turn away from him. That's not what David does. David sees the same thing, and yet it causes him to celebrate He celebrates the fact that God is God and we are not. He doesn't see it as something that's frustrating. He sees it as something that's worthy of worship. And I think that's important. God never promised you or me that he was going to sit sit us down and explain his purpose for everything that happens in our lives. 
He's never promised us to explain fully His ways. But He has promised us to never leave us or forsake us. And I think for that reason, we worship Him even when our own understanding of what's going on in life falls short. We still can worship. And this is, I think, what David emphasizes in the next section, in verses 7 through 12. And it's this, that God is omnipresent. God is present everywhere, all the time. There's not a single place in existence where God is not. And he lists four places with significance. The heavens, he lists Sheol, the grave, the place of the dead that's translated to. He he talks about the wings of the morning, and then he talks about the uttermost parts of the sea. And he says God is present in all these places all the time. Now, the first two references, idea of heaven or, you know, the grave, we kind of get that easily. Heaven is up, the grave is down. That's pretty simple. One of my wife's favorite authors, her name is Jen Wilkin, she pointed something out in this section that I think is really helpful. When David talks about the wings of the morning, where would the morning take flight from? What direction does the sun rise? The east, right? Then, David, if we recognize where, where is David writing this psalm from? Almost definitely, he's writing it from Israel. Which direction would the great sea be in relation to where Israel is? To the west. So, David talks about the omnipresence of God here, and he references high and low and east and west. God is everywhere. He's in all of those places all the time. And he goes on in verses 11 and 12 to say that to God, the darkness is the same as the light. There's no difference to him. I don't know if you know this about me, but I don't see in the dark very well at all. Not that every, anybody really does, but I'm like exceptionally poor at seeing in the dark. And on more than one occasion, I've rolled over to kiss Nikki goodnight in bed and we've hit heads because I can't see depth and where she is, and she's not happy about it any time. This is also why, I don't even have my wallet with me, but I have a a flashlight that I carry with me on my wallet just in case it gets dark somewhere because I can't see in the dark very well at all. Verse 10 says that even in this situation, his hand leads his children, and it says that his hand holds his children. So here, let's combine that with the north, south, east, and west idea. And here's the beautiful picture I think that David is painting in these verses. In the past, in the future, and right now, God's hand is holding his children. In the darkness and in the light. So in the hard times and in the good times, no matter where you are, God is present and God leads his children. At all times and in all places, God is fully present. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. Moms, I know there are times when you wish you had a a real set of eyes in the back of your head. When you had another way to see or a way you could be in multiple places at once. Maybe you've got your kids are all in different places and you wish you could see what they're all doing and be there with them. 
I also know that sometimes you wish you could be where no one is, right? And you can be all by yourself. Uh, moms need a break too sometimes. Is, don't feel bad about that. But we've already determined this morning, David has already taught us that God is not us and we are not God. And so we don't have the same capabilities as God. We can't know like God knows. He does see everything. He does know everything. And he is present everywhere. And lots of us, not just moms, but lots of us would like to be like God in this way because we don't like to be limited in time and in space. And our entire lives revolve around those limits, don't they? Only a holy, omniscient, omnipresent God can be those things at once and is those things. Distance can't separate you from God, from his view. Darkness can't keep you from his presence. And again, depending on your current situation with the Lord, that's either really convicting or really comforting. David goes on to explain another aspect of who God is in the next set of verses, verses 13 through 18. And it's this, that God is omnipotent. God's all-powerful. This is the part of the psalm where we're most tempted to turn it inward, to, to make ourselves the focus. Because it says, my inward parts, my frame, my unformed substance, the days that were formed for me, right? So easy to term the limelight on ourselves, but I really think we lose more than we gain when we do that. In order for him to increase, what does John say? We have to decrease. In order for a person's life to be saved, what does Jesus say must first happen? They have to lose it. Self-worth doesn't come from being the best. It comes from deferring to the best, looking to the best. And we're talking about Jesus Christ. What scripture, though, says about us, about mankind, is incredible here, though. I don't want to miss that. The God who has the power to do anything he wants created you in his image, creates people in his image fearfully and wonderfully, even in the darkness of the mother's womb, almost like it's the depths of the earth. God creates people specifically and intentionally with purpose. Not only that, that's, that's enough to recognize God as omnipotent, but not only that, he knows all the days of a person's life before they're ever conceived, before they're ever born. God knows every day of your life. As moms and dads, we have lists of hopes and dreams for our kids, right? Whether it's higher education, jobs, family, future, we have these hopes and we have these dreams even really before they're born or at least as they're getting older. And despite all of our plans and all of our you know little nudges and proddings, Mom and dad, we, we don't determine the days of our kids. I'm learning that as we go. We don't determine those things, but God does. God has already. We shouldn't, I think, let this be a source of frustration for us parents. I think it should be another cause to worship the all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God of the universe. These Verses also motivate Christians to value life differently. From even before conception, not just starting at birth, from even before conception, God is forming 
and knitting and writing the story of our lives. This is what these verses tell us. Now, this is such a precious thought to us that God is holding us and knows us in that way, but it's tough for those who've lost little ones. It can be a source of pain. It can be a source of heartache. Since I'm simply a mere man who does not have the answers like God does, who doesn't have the mind of God, I can only point us back to what he has told us about himself, to this scripture, and remind us that his knowledge is too high for us. We can't attain it. You and I will not always understand his ways, and that's okay. This, unfortunately, can drive us to frustration, even despair, and sometimes even anger and resentment. I get that. But I hope it eventually drives us back into the arms of an all-loving, all-knowing, present everywhere, loving God, all-powerful God who cares for his children in ways that we cannot always see with our physical eyes in ways that we can't always understand with our minds. These verses teach us that God is completely sovereign over each one of us. Completely sovereign. He knows your days before you were ever born, while you were still in your mother's womb. Everything that there is to be known about you is known by God. Don't fall into the trap, the temptation of thinking that no one gets you. That there's no one there that understands what you're going through, because there is. Because God made you, and he knows you. And the thought that kind of sort of blew my mind this week was, was the idea that even before a single breath is in the lungs of my great-grandkids, their days are known by God. He knows them because of who he is, because God is omniscient. God is ever-present, present everywhere. God is omnipotent, and God is sovereign, and not just for future generations. He's sovereign over us even now, today. That means that nothing the doctor tells you changes the days of your life. Nothing the doctor tells you can shorten the days that God has for you. No accident takes a person home early, and no medicine keeps a person here longer than God has ordained for them. Now, I don't think this should make us morbid and think about the end of our lives and when that's going to be and how all of that works out. I hope instead that it would make us grateful that nothing happens out of a good God's control. Now, after seeing the extent of God's care and God's design in these verses, David, I think, is just blown away. Look at verses 17 and 18 specifically. God's the creator of everyone and everything. And this is the realization that hits David and something I want us to see clearly this morning too. God's the creator of everyone and everything, and yet he's thinking about David. How could that not affect him? God's thoughts are more than the grains of sand on the entire planet. And friend, some of those thoughts are about you. How could that not affect us? Now, this isn't making this passage about, all about us. 
but it's showing us how we're involved in it. There's a purpose in this plan of God, and you're involved. And Jen Wilkin, again, pointed out some irony or at least some contrast in these verses. Think about these things with me. David has just, in very poetic fashion, described how himself and all of mankind is very quantifiable. What I mean is this. He just said that our thoughts can be known, right, to the Lord. Our thoughts can be known. Our days are numbered before we've ever lived them. Even before a word is on our lips, in our mouths, God knows it. You and I can go stand on a scale and quickly find out how much we weigh or put a measuring tape on our height, find out how much we how tall we are. There's other scriptures that say that God knows the amount of hairs on our very heads. We have definite limits in all of those things. You can quantify Rod Omas pretty quickly, but not God. God exists outside of scales and measuring tapes and our own abilities and strengths. God is infinite in time, in space, in power, and in wisdom. He is immeasurable. The limits that you and I are bound by in this life do not hold God back in the least bit. They don't constrain him at all. His vastness cannot be measured. We cannot calculate the extent of his knowledge. And when our picture of God includes such a vast and beautiful vision, it always elicits a response. And it does here for David. Look at this last section, verses 19 through 24. After we've seen who God is, now we see a right response to it. But when we read these words, when David says stuff like, slay the wicked, O God, uh, I hate them with complete hatred. It seems a little different than everything else in this chapter so far. And you're like, we might, we might be tempted to be like, dude, calm down, David. <laughs> Slow down, buddy. It's going to be okay. Um, any hockey fans? We've already talked about baseball. Hockey fans in the house. Uh, so did anybody catch the... I think it was the Washington Capitals game and the New York, New York Rangers game from this week. Wild stuff happened in this game. Um, just a very quick recap, because I don't want to get lost in a hockey story, but somebody was beat up on like Tuesday night, and one of the teams took exception to it, didn't like it. The very next game they played one another, as soon as the puck dropped, before a stick hit it, the first three guys on the front line dropped their gloves and went at it a second into the game. And that wasn't the only fight. There were more. At one point, I, was, I heard on the radio, there were seven players from one team in the penalty box at once. Why would it? And you see this in baseball happen sometimes too. Bench clearing brawls. And you see guys from the bullpen. I got to believe they don't even know what happened. But they are sprinting across the field to get in the middle of this scrum, right? Why would people do that? Why do teammates do that? Because they're, they're pretty close-knit. And when you mess with one of their guys, you mess with all of them. Right? And if you've been a part of a team, you, I think you kind of understand that well. 
They're so close that they're going to come to the defense of their guy. David is so tight with the Lord at this point in his life that when you mess with the Lord and you take his name in vain and you oppose him, David is coming for you. David's going to come and get you. And so he says, slay the wicked, O God. I hate him just like you do. He's taken up an offense for him. He's ready to go to battle for the honor of the Lord here. But you know what? You and I aren't called to do that at this point. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Pray for those who persecute you. Paul tells us, your, your battle is not against flesh and blood. And Peter says that we should put to death sinful desires which wage war against our souls. So the question that we need to ask and to find an answer to is who is the enemy now? Because it's not the other team on the, on the ball field or on the ice rink. It's not the person that treats you badly at your job. It's not your spouse who's not giving you the care and attention that you feel like you deserve. They're not the enemy. There's a different enemy. Who, do, who is it? Who do we battle against? Who do we wage war against? Who is our enemy? It's not a physical one, but it is instead a sin-soaked world. It is an enemy who lies and deceives, and it is against our own sinful, fleshly desires. I think when we read these verses, 19 through 21, where David is taking up an offense for God, the enemy of God that we now battle against is sin. It's sin. The enemy of God that we ought to hate with complete hatred ought to be the enemy of sin. And so when you think about everything that David has explained about God in this chapter, does it make you hate your own sin? Are we willing to go to battle against the pride that's deep-rooted in our hearts because we see God for who he is? Does it affect us that way? I think it should. I don't think it always does. It certainly doesn't for me, but I think it should affect us that way. How many of us claim that it does and then Monday morning we go and treat someone like they're not even made in God's image at all? Instead, what if a view of God like we've seen him today, what if it caused us to hate our own sins so much that, it, that we prayed hard for the Spirit to root out that selfishness and pride and to resist temptation more? That kind of a view of God has a profound effect on every relationship that we have, both with God and with people. That would be hard evidence of a changed life, wouldn't it? To see someone giving up their pride and humbling themselves because of what the Spirit has done in their life. A real view of the all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful, sovereign God will do that. And the reality is, if you want to get right down to it for David, he has been the guy that he describes right here in these verses. He's been the one to shed blood. He's been the one to lie and deceive. From the best that we can know, this was written years after his sin with Bathsheba, his sin with Uriah, her husband. 
And so now David, even though he's been that guy who this describes, he's come to recognize the error of those things, and he asks God to put them to death in him. Slay the wicked. Do we ask God to do that in our own lives, in our own hearts? Slay the enemy of sin within me, Lord. With this in mind, David ends this psalm in verses 23 and 24 with some familiar words. Look at 23 and look at verse 1. He uses the same set of words, search and know. In verse 1, he said that God has searched him and known him. So why is he asking God to do it again? He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Why? If God already knows those things and he's already searched David and knows him perfectly, why is David asking him to do it again? I think David experienced what every one of us, what every Christian still experiences, the ongoing need for repentance. David knows that the process of seeing himself in relation to God is a repetitive thing. It is an ongoing view that we need to be reminded of. Maybe you've had this view of God in the past, and this morning is serving as a reminder of who God is for you, that you might count your sin as the enemy that needs to be slayed and that you would trust in the Lord to do it in you. It's no different for us. We don't hold up some other person as our standard of how good of a Christian we are. We hold up the righteousness and perfection and holiness of God. And doing that reminds us of who God is. And doing that reminds us of who we are, right? Because we can't think rightly about ourselves until we think rightly about God. So as we're thinking rightly about God, we see and learn more about ourselves. And that's this, you're a sinner in need of grace. I'm a sinner in need of grace. And not just once, Every day. And that's why I think Scripture is clear in that it says, we've sang it this morning, morning by morning, new mercies I see. Great is His faithfulness. When we see ourselves in comparison to the greatness of God, our hearts will be moved to repentance and worship. I want to end this morning with a passage from Acts 17. So you can turn there. This will be brief, I, I promise. Acts 17, these verses just really capsulate what we've seen of God this morning and remind us also of a proper response. So Acts 17, verses 24 through 27. Acts 17, 24 through 27. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each of us. He's actually not far from each 
one of us. God is all-knowing. God is present everywhere. God is all-powerful. He is sovereign over us. And here's the thing that I want us to know. Clearly, he's not far from you. The God who is all of those things, and even more, is not far from you. Since God is not far from you, the proper response is to seek him, that we might find him. So here's the question that I want to leave with you this morning. Are you seeking him? Are you seeking him? Let's pray. Lord, what a precious thought to know. You're not far from each one of us. And we've already determined, I hope we've been convinced this morning, that we're not like you in any way. We're made in your image, and in that way we are like you, I guess, Lord. But as far as our wisdom and our knowledge and understanding of your creation and our, even ourselves, we're not like you in any way. Your wisdom is high. That knowledge is too high for us, too surpassing for us to understand. And so, Lord, in humility, not in this false humility, but in real humility, we just say, Lord, you are more than we can understand. Your ways are higher than our ways, and we're okay with that. We, we admit that to you in this moment, Lord. I admit that to you in this moment, but I also, like David, recognize that I'm going to have to do that again in the future. I'm going to have to repent of my pride and repent of my efforts to do it on my own. Lord, help us see that the enemy who we wage war against, the enemy who we hate as you hate, is not our neighbor, but Lord, sin. That affects us so deeply in every area. God, wage war against that in us today so that we might seek you. May that be the response. And we've seen you for who you are today. Remove sin from us so that we can seek you for who you really are. God, you're more than we could ever know or understand. And we, we should like it that way. It's good that it's that way. Lord, encourage my brothers and sisters here. If there's someone here that does not know you, they have not sought you. Maybe they aren't intending to seek you. And yet today they've heard this message and they've, they've found out that you are not far. Their creator who knows all about them is not far from them and wants to know them. Lord, I pray that they turn to you in faith and repentance and trust today. In Christ's name alone we pray, amen.